Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Louise Wilder. She has been a copywriter at Penguin Books for 25 years. During this time, she estimates she has produced about 5,000 blurbs. Her new book is Blurb Your Enthusiasm, which is published by our friends at One World. Louise, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. It is an honor to have you here. And first, Louise, I want to talk about the concept of a blurb as you write them. What you are calling a blurb is probably different from what most of our listeners understand as a blurb. What, Louise, is a blurb to you? Um, Absolutely true. There is a a complete difference between the way we use the word in uh, the United Kingdom and in the United States. So my definition of a blurb um, would be a piece of descriptive copy about a book that appears on the jacket of that book. Um, Whereas in the US, it's more likely, as you know, to mean a review or endorsement from, um, you know, usually from another author. Um, So, yeah, there's there's a potential (laughs) potential for confusion here, I think, isn't there? Um, But I I think um, I suppose one thing to note is that probably both uses of the word imply hype in some way. Something, you know, that, that when the when the word was first invented, it was by an American author. Um, Frank Gillette Burgess and it was for an an ad for his book called Are You a Bromide? It was a comedy book um, and um, it features um, an advert with a a picture of a woman shouting and it says this is Miss Belinda Blurb and the art of blurbing and so since then it's always been associated with a kind of over-the-top literary hype publishing speak and so I think um, I don't know if you agree but I think probably you know that maybe a blurb is something that we don't quite trust, possibly. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I could agree with that statement. Thank you so much. Um, T.S. Eliot uh, wrote that everyone engaged in publishing knows uh, what a difficult art blurb writing is. I have a poet friend who I won't name who posts publicly on Facebook from time to time that he's taking a sabbatical for this or that, oftentimes to work on a new book or maybe go on a vacation. And he always says, I won't be writing any blurbs during this time. Uh, Is blurb writing really that difficult or is this a view that is exclusive to poets? (laughs) Um, That's really interesting. Um, it makes me think that maybe your poet friend is a really good person because if he's talking about blurbing in the American sense, you know, like he won't provide a blurb for another author's book because he's too busy, I guess that means he's actually reading the whole book and, and taking his time over it, which is, you know, which is great. Um, and I I suppose in the in the other sense of, of writing a blurb, um, in, you know, the, the British sense, um, it's quite interesting that there does seem to be this link between poets and blurbs. Um, T.S. Eliot wrote um, what his colleagues said, he wrote um, thousands of blurbs for Faber and Faber when he was publisher there, even though he was a poet as well. Um, And um, the British poet Cecil Day-Lewis 
said that the sonnet and the detective story and the blurb were all the most perfect crystallization of literary form, which I think is a really nice quote. And it's, um, I suppose it's the idea of that you're trying to get as much emotional impact into as tiny a space as possible. So I'm not saying I'm a poet by any means, but uh, but perhaps they've got that in common. Yeah, absolutely. And um, whether or not you are a poet, uh, that idea bleeds into this next question, which is, is a blurb a poem? You've written over 5,000 of these. Is each blurb its own unique snowflake or is there a formula? And what I mean is, does the pinning of blurbs ever seem repetitive or cyclical? Mm. Um, I love that description of a blurb as a unique snowflake, and I would, <laughs> I would love to think that I've created five thousand unique snowflakes over the course of my career. I suspect that's not true, sadly. Um, but I do think that there is a craft to to writing this kind of. of short copy that you can learn um in some senses you know it gets easier in that respect because you know there are certain formula that you can follow but in some senses it probably gets harder because I'm also thinking oh god I used that adjective only yesterday I've got to try and think of something different this time um but I think there are there are certain things I always do which is obviously to start with the author's voice to read the book I mean I do try and read as much of the book as I possibly can um and to try and almost mimic their voice, I think, in the copy. So, so I feel like the reader's trying to hear their voice rather than mine. And to pick out useful facts or details, things that might catch a reader's eye. Um, and then I always try to start a piece of copy with a bang, you know, like a good hook or an emotional sort of something that makes an emotional connection that might intrigue a reader or su surprise them or make them feel amused or, or clever. Um, and then I think, as you say, it's it's like, you know, the, there is a, a formula in the sense that you're telling a little story, you're telling a tiny story with a hopefully a, a beginning and a middle and, and an end of, uh, of in some way that like you're trying to boil something very big down into something very, very little. But you're still trying to have a lot of drama and tension, even in those those few words if that makes sense, I think. <laughs> Although I do think also sometimes it's fine if blurbs are a bit repetitive because for, you know, a lot of genres that we all love, like, you know, crime or, you know, a historical thriller, I think that's totally fine. If you see the, the, the copy line saying, you know, Berlin, 1944, I think that's fine. You know, my husband knows that he will want to read that book on holiday because it's a spy thriller. <laughs> and so it, it's, it, the copy can sort of be reassuring as well, I think, in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, reading about uh, your your process, it seems like a lot of things that you do are not entirely different from what, what I do here, uh, preparing for podcasts and, and trying to boil a book down. Yeah, um, very interesting. Well, thank you, Louise. Um, the first chapter in your book covers titles. What are some of the most unfortunate titles for famous books that were left on the cutting room floor <laughs> yeah unfortunate is a good word isn't it um, I think yeah I had a lot of fun um researching these there are some there are some real shockers actually that um I mean the great Gatsby is the what I start the chapter with um and um one alternative of, of 
of F. Scott Fitzgerald was them the high bouncing lover, which <laughs> kind of makes your mind boggle a little bit. It or does. Um, under the red, white, and blue, or um, Tremalchio in West Egg, which he was really fond of and was still worrying, you know, up until publication that perhaps he'd chosen the wrong title. Um, and there are so many others that, you know, quite famous books, you know, that we know and love. Um, so Pride and Prejudice was going to be first impression in first impressions, <laughs> as I'm sure many people know. Um, 1984 was going to be the last man in Europe. Dracula was going to be the undead, which is, you know, pretty good, but I just don't think any of them are as good. And I think if you look at a lot of them, what they've got in common is that um they're emphatic they're simplified you know that the titles that that they went with are, are simplified versions um that i also read that ian McEwan's atonement was initially going to be called an atonement and then mm -hmm. a fellow author said no no get rid of get rid of the article you know you don't need it um and i think as well as that simplicity they often you know they, they use a name um or or a number or something you know alliterative Pride and Prejudice with Great Gatsby they're just things that stick in our heads and um, I think in one of the things I say in the book is you you can't have a word of mouth hit if if you can't remember its name so <laughs> I think it's got to have that sticking power. Yeah absolutely and that change for Ian McEwen um, as we sit here recording his new novel Lessons just came out seems to have influenced his whole career because I think almost you know, maybe 80, 90% of his books are now one word. Um, yes. Amsterdam, Atonement, Lessons, Saturday, etc. Yes, uh, yes, that's really true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's funny how those things work. Well, thank you so much, Louise. Listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Louise Wilder. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Louise Wilder, author of Blurb Your Enthusiasm, which is published by our friends at One World. Louise, uh, back to book titles, as we were discussing before the break, I never considered that a title would be the responsibility or right of a publisher to choose. I don't know why, because of course it is, um, but especially relative to books like The Great Gatsby, I can't imagine writing The Great Gatsby or 1984 and the title not being a part of my final artistic vision that I had some sort of ownership over. What other aspects of a book, besides the editing of the content itself, might we be surprised to know are chosen by the publisher and not the author? Yeah, it's it, it's really fascinating, is it, to think that that those books didn't always have those titles. They feel like they're just part of their identity. And and yeah, it's like once you, you know, see what happens behind the scenes, it's a little bit dis disillusioning. Um, 
but um yeah i think you're absolutely right there's there's so much that that isn't the author's responsibility or that the author is happy to hand over so um i spend a lot of my days if i'm not writing descriptive copy i'm thinking of titles for books i'm thinking of subtitles for books or copy lines that might go on the front of a book so it's all something that publishers think about so much um and sometimes an author will have an incredibly clear idea of what they want right from the start and they'll have a brilliant title it's all sorted out but i would say probably um, maybe three quarters <laughs> of our books you know it it's not like that at all and there's so much um umming and ahhing and discussing that goes on behind the scenes which is probably a good thing because it means you know that you've really given it a lot of thought and you're thinking about your audience which is also incredibly important um and another thing probably that authors don't have that much say over as a rule is the the design that goes on their book as well um i think that tends to vary um but i know a lot of the time it's sort of presented as a fait accompli um Although in my case, I was really lucky that I was shown a few designs for the book and got to choose, which I couldn't believe. <laughs> it was brilliant. <laughs> um, and there were some lovely designs, but some of them we thought possibly, you know, they looked a little bit too academic, maybe a bit dry. And so when I saw the design with the the lovely little cute mouse on it, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I want the mouse. Um, and so that was brilliant. And it was fascinating to be part of that process, but I suppose on the other side, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I um I love how the finished book looks. By the way, we had a okay. copy in at Explore Booksellers this week. Um, will you open the second chapter of your book, Louise, uh, by talking about this weird moment of time when bookstores reopened after COVID nineteen hit? I remember uh, at my former employer, Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, we had stanchions up. It was harder to get into our bookstore than it was to get into Peak Studio 54. Uh, <laughs> we were sanitizing books after anyone touched them, doing browsing by appointment only. Um, how did this era of time affect your job or perhaps uh, give people a way of perceiving blurbs differently? Yeah, it was such a, oh, what a strange time it was. I think so difficult for booksellers and difficult for publishers as well, because, you know, because we all love and rely on booksellers so much. And I think everyone really missed that relationship. I mean, people missed so many things. Um, I think, you know, from, from my point of view, I was very easily able to do my job at home. But I think when I did read about books being displayed with their backs facing outwards so that that people wouldn't have to touch them um I remember there was a flurry of emails between my fellow copywriters and me going like this is it we've got our, this is our moment in the sun you know everyone's going to see these things that we write they're going to be the first thing they see um and we were all so excited but then I think I found this this slight worry setting in that perhaps in a way like I feel you can't have one without the other you need to have the front of the book to to you know it's kind of like if the blurb's telling a little story then I feel like the title and what you see on the front of the book are kind of the once upon a time so they they pique your interest and then you turn over to get more information so um it did make me think as well about how much 
all the words we see on a book jacket, they're all part of a whole and they're all working together with each other, you know, to try and persuade us that we need this book in our lives. And so, um, yeah, it was almost like we felt a little bit exposed as well, <laughs> if that makes sense. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. And what a strange moment of time. And I'm, I'm glad that we have moved on. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. Yeah. Um, yeah well, um, Louise, in your book, you do mention uh, film blurbs specifically jumping out at me or Jaws and Alien. Uh, <laughs> what's more difficult, do you think, writing a blurb for a book or for a film? Oh, what a good question. Um, <laughs> the, the one thing about films that I've always found really interesting is the trailers that you know that you see at the cinema. Do you call them trailers as well in the in the states? Yeah. <laughs> some people call them trailers. Some people call them previews. Either. Okay. Way. Right. So I've always felt that they're kind of like blurbs for a film in a way. Um, they're kind of like cutting the story, aren't they? And, and they're boiling it down. And um, But they're also much more than a synopsis because they're trying to entice you into the world of that film. So, um, um, oh, yeah, I, I maybe with a film, it's even harder, you know. Um, there's obviously a lot more pressure, isn't there? Because <laughs> they've got to make a lot more money than books have. Um, and I think, you know, once you nail that perfect bit of copy, to describe a film it kind of becomes part of that film's life doesn't it you know in in the way that that with Jaws 2 you know it's you know um, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water and then with Alien um, uh, in in space nobody can hear you scream which I just think as I say in the book is so clever because it you know it tells you that it's science fiction and horror combined but it doesn't have to use those words it just creates an instant atmosphere um yeah, and there are so many other examples that I just love. I think Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a film I'm very fond of, and you no know, one man struggle to take it easy. Just, it's just perfect. It's so snappy and clever, and it's got that contrast. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe there's more pressure with the film. Yeah, maybe. Well, thank you so much, Louise. Um, let's now talk about Stephen King. Uh, first. Has anyone written more blurbs in the American sense of the word than Stephen King? <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> I haven't counted, which is possibly something I should have done while researching my book, although I think it would have taken a long time. Um, it seems that he he's the most prolific, doesn't it? I think, you know, there are so many books that, that feature blurbs, quotes from him on them. Um, but for... I that's something that doesn't bother me. I find it, um, I don't know, I find it, it's like, you know, it's kind of done in the spirit of a sort of um, literary camaraderie, I think, between him and other authors. And he's talked a lot about it. And, you know, he says that um, he only blurbs books he loves and he does it for the simple reason that no one blurbed him when he was starting out as an author. And I just think, you know, what a, a generous and positive attitude towards something that I know is seen quite cynically by by a lot of people you know as a kind of bit of mutual you know you scratch my back I'll scratch yours but um but I think for him you know it's a very positive um thing to do um and I also love there's on, on the chalk man which is a really great thriller. There's a quote by him on the front, isn't there? Which, which just says something like, "If you if you like Mike's my stuff, you'll love this." <laughs> so, you know, what more do you need to say? Um, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, very good. I don't think 
um, Stephen King needs his back scratch. Maybe everybody needs their back scratch. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe but, um, he did at some point. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like he finds the silver lining in everything he reads, which I think is a wonderful trait uh, to possess. Yeah, but I now want to ask you about first lines. Uh, you cite the famous first line of Anna Karenina and Moby Dick, uh, but you state that Stephen King is the king of first lines. Um, and there's a conversation that I've had several times in the past few weeks as Stephen King's new novel, Fairy Tale, was just released uh, a couple weeks ago as we sit here recording this interview. But as ridiculous as this sounds, I think Stephen King is vastly underrated as a literary author. I think many people still pigeonhole him as a horror writer, which of course uh, he is and has been, but he also does many other things and does them magnificently. I just think the literary merit and value of his work is not appreciated as it should be, though I think it will be in time. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think of the work of Stephen King, Louise, and why is he the master of first lines? Um, yeah, I think your listeners won't be able to see, but I've just been nodding furiously to everything that you say because um, because I couldn't agree more. I just think I, I think Stephen, you know, he he's a genius. I mean, I think it's it's one of those things where you get slightly cursed by genre or or you know, as in the case of some novelists like Dickens, you're not taken very seriously all the time because because you like plots, because you're hugely commercially successful. Therefore, you know, you can't, you're maybe not 100% a serious writer, you know, which obviously we know is is, is total rubbish. Um, and I think, yeah, he's he's just wonderful. He's, and he's also a writer I grew up with. Um, when I was quite little, I used to go to my great aunt's house and explore her bookshelves. And there was this wonderful old cover for Salem's Lot, which was just black with the outline of a woman's face and then a little red drop of blood coming down from it. And I was just so fascinated by this. And I and I just loved his novels growing up. I think when I imagine that some people might have thought I should have read things that others might consider a bit more improving. You know, I, I just loved his books and I think and I think they are improving in that sense because they teach you so much about storytelling and character and um and I, though when I was rereading Carrie you know the dialogue is just so great that the the voice of of her mother um he is just such a master um and I suppose yeah the, the reason I write about his his first lines is obviously you know you know, my book is about the things that attract us to books and the way that books entice us to read them. And so um, I talk about the first lines of, of blurbs, but also the first lines of books because they're so important. And Stephen King writes a lot about them as well, about how he will often compose the first line of a book in his head before he goes to sleep. And this could be like months before he even writes the book, which I just love that idea. Um, and he also talks about how important they are for setting up a voice but you know it he says you know that the, a lot of the singers we love they have a voice that we instantly recognize and so a first line is just crucial for doing that i'm going to give the example of something like the capture in the rye which obviously as soon as you hear the narrator's voice you like you know what kind of experience you're going to get and i think king's novels do that as well but they also um, they also hook us in. They make us feel something. But you know, there are so many good examples. There's, there's um, needful things. You know, it's like you've been here before. 
it talks about the terror um, on writing. Um, he talks about the you know this this idea of of things just kind of um, coming to him, kind of you know like almost fully formed. Like, and I yeah I I love this idea of him him just drawing these things out of his head. Um, and I was looking at the the first um the first line of fairy tale, which I haven't read yet. <laughs> and that was just another great example. Um, hold on, where is it? It's, yeah, I'm sure I can tell this story. I'm also sure no one will believe it. And so it's just brilliant because there's instantly a mystery there. Um, and that's what he does so well, I think. Yeah, I agree. I haven't been able to read fairy tale yet either, but it is on my list. Between podcast books, I'm currently reading Insomnia. And for listeners who want um, a great example of a uh, literary um, sort of not horror Stephen King book, I recommend checking out the book 112263, which is about uh, the JFK assassination and someone who goes back in time in uh, an attempt to prevent it. Um so check that one out. But Louise, moving on from Mr. King, who doesn't need our uh, help publicizing his novels, um, <laughs> you, you mentioned a blurb by Nicole Krauss. Uh, Louise, that is pretty ridiculous. Um, and what are some of the more ridiculous blurbs of this type? And what are the pitfalls mm -hmm. that you believe one should avoid when blurbing a novel? Yeah. Um, so I guess here we're back to blurbing in the in the American sense, aren't we, of, of this this yes. quote that, that she gave, which is, as you say, ridiculous. It's sort of like how about to read the book is to have yourself taken apart and touched at your essence and then put back together again and made into a human being. And it's just, it's just crazy, isn't it? And I think I suppose one thing to avoid in both senses of blurbing is I feel like to just to use language that you wouldn't use when you were talking to a friend about a book. Like I would I would never recommend a book to a friend and say, oh, well, you know, it was really that I read it because it was just so, so luminous and so dazzling and so shimmering. I was like, well, you wouldn't say that. So why do book reviewers and, and people who write about books use those kinds of words? Or, you know, like, yes, it was just, it's <laughs> the, pro the prose was so lucid. That's what I loved about it. And like, obviously we don't say that. We talk about the characters that we loved and, and, and the atmosphere that it created. And, and so I, I think it's funny that you often have this kind of, this language that, that, people in the book world often use to describe books which is really nothing like a normal human being speaking <laughs> yeah thank you I did uh, really enjoy her book the history of love um and I think yes. at that moment of time when she was married to uh Jonathan Seffrin for you mentioned his title extremely loud and incredibly close um which also came out around the same time as Dave Eggers a heartbreaking work of staggering mm -hmm. genius and there was just a moment of time when these things were kind of tongue-in-cheek and um yes and maybe yes. a little overwritten but I don't think <laughs> that's what she was going for with that uh yeah that blurb I mean, in the maybe, American maybe. Sense. yeah yeah um well great thank you so much Louise uh finally I want to talk about the art of a cover. Uh, you mentioned Catcher in the Rye, uh, which you also spoke about earlier, which is maximally understated and probably one of the most well-known covers of all time. Uh, what makes for an effective cover and what are some of the more laughable cover trends? <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, in 
in terms of effective covers, um, I think probably, as you say, that simplicity is always a winner, isn't it? Um, and one thing, I suppose, because I'm interested in words as well, one thing I like in particular is is covers that use words in a clever way and that sort of play a joke or a trick on the reader, which I really enjoy. Um, I worked on a, a series called Great Ideas, which is, you know, little works of classic philosophy or essays and that kind of thing. And um, there's one which is uh, called An Apology for Idlers um, by Robert Louis Stevenson. And the cover, because it's about being an idler, you know, like being lazy, the cover's actually half finished. <laughs> So, so that you know, it's like the designer hasn't quite been bothered to get to the end. Um, and there's another edition of um, back to 1984 again, a, a, an edition of that novel I saw where the the title and the author have actually been um, blanked out, like you know, as if they'd been censored. Um, if you touch it with your fingers, you can feel the, you can just about you know tell what's underneath if that makes sense. Um, and so I think. I like yeah I like covers that are that are clever I suppose and that, that maybe make me think or surprise me in some way and and then as you say yes there are there are so many trends out there aren't there I think um a lot of publishers tend to you know if they if they see a bandwagon you know they're they're on it so it's you know that the one I thing I talk about is in a lot of what women's fiction I suppose you would call it um you know you have a lot of women without faces looking away from you staring off into the distance occasionally running into the distance you know sometimes they're just a pair of legs with them with some shoes on um and so you have all that kind of thing and then I don't I I don't know if you've noticed it in the states but there's um there was a the brilliant book three women by Lisa Tadeo that that um I know was a a hit with you as well it had I think it had quite um a stylish sort of simple graphic cover in the states but in the uk it had this beautiful cover featuring a painting of fruit for when it was published by bloomsbury um like an old master and um and now i just feel like there's fruit everywhere on every cover i look at there's like you know a peach or an apricot or an apple or something and so i think it just shows that yeah we like to play it safe don't we i think <laughs> um in the book world a lot of the time and so I think that the thinking is immediately, oh, well, if they like that, they'll like this as well. Um, but yeah, I think for the poor old customer, sometimes it makes life a bit difficult. Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned the uh, woman looking away from you cover, because this is something that has become somewhat of a joke um, amongst booksellers in every bookstore I've been in. <laughs> even even some bookstores have done, you know, whole wall displays of all of the woman looking away from you covers, um, because there's like a thousand of them. Um, and, and my understanding is the reasoning behind it is so one can imagine themselves as the woman looking away from you instead of seeing the face that is on the cover, which I get, but it still seems excessive at this moment of time. Um, well, thank you, Louise, for coming on and thank you for writing this wonderful book. It is a great read for anyone who loves books, which if you are listening to this podcast, I assume is you. Uh, listeners, I have been speaking with Louise Wilder, author, a blurb your enthusiasm which is published by our friends at one world louise thank you so much for joining me thank you
Once again, I would like to thank Louise Wilder for joining us. Copies of Blurb Your Enthusiasm can be published from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.